Hard to believe it's here. Next week is Thanksgiving. The year is winding down quickly. But we got lots of news to talk about today on Today in Ohio. It's the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with the cast of regulars. Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, Lisa Garvin. Lisa, you finally saw the snowfall that you've been dreading for a while. A bunch of snow and you still have it. I do. I'm in the, the you know the tip of the primary snow belt. And at least it covered up my fall leaves that I didn't rake up this weekend. So. <laughs> yeah, that's always the tough thing around this time of the year is the leaves fall and the snow falls on top of it. Let's get going. We had a great weekend of stories to talk about. How did two Ohio legislators elected by a tiny percentage of the state's voters hijack the system that voters overwhelmingly installed to end gerrymandering in the state? Lord Johnston, Andrew Tobias really did the deep dive explaining in the simplest of terms how these two guys completely corrupted the system that we built to avoid exactly what they're doing. What's the story? Yeah, we're talking about House Speaker Bob Cup and Senate President Matt Huffman. And these two Ohio legislators are given more power by their ma fellow majority Republican legislators. Obviously, they're elected just like any other state legislator, but then they get bumped up in power because of their 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 colleagues. And they have the most at stake when it comes to the new legislative districts. This is supposed to be a Democratic bipartisan, sorry, well, Democratic in the real sense of the word, bipartisan uh collaboration and and then there was some statewide folks on it secretary of state frank larose state auditor keith faber and uh mike dewine the governor of the state but they really didn't play any role nor did the democrats because cup and huffman froze them all out of the process they didn't even know where the work was happening and they didn't have their specialized software they would need to draw and analyze map of their own cup and huffman wouldn't let them use theirs it seems from the very beginning they were intent on drawing this out in a bunker similar to how they did it in in 2010 and 2011. The, the story, to do the story, Andrew went through all of the documents that have been filed in the Supreme Court yes. and, and pulled it all out and put the cogent facts together. And I haven't seen anything that lays it out this simply. And if you haven't read it and you're listening, go to cleveland.com and read it. It's a, it's a first-rate story. There are a couple things, though, that, that kind of stood out to me. These were two of seven members of the commission. Right. The other five members of the commission seemed like they didn't try that hard. That, you know, at one point, Faber says, oh, it was prohibitively expensive to get the software. But then I think the price was $7,500, right? I mean, $75,000 would not be prohibitively expensive for a government that is exp as expensive as Ohio's. So I'm not quite sure I bought that, that, hey, it was too expensive. They could have. But he did say he finally did get it recently and realized the learning curve is way too steep. And that is probably true. What, what also surprises me, though, is that the three Republicans, if they really were cut out by these two guys and were offended by that, why didn't they just go ahead and hire consultants to do it themselves, hire people that do know how to do this and, and build it? The, there were a lot of excuses in this story, no? No, I agree. And the when you talk about the cost, the legislature... Uh, budgeted millions of dollars for it. I don't believe they spent anywhere near what they were allowed to spend for this. But I think going in, they expected this would be a collaborative process, at least be among the Republicans. I think Faber, DeWine, and LaRose, who in the past has been a big proponent, proponent of redistricting, thought they would be working together. So why would they buy their own software when they figured they'd be helping 
draw the maps together. Instead, they ended up using like Dave's redistricting app online, trying to draw their own and maps, which didn't work. It didn't get into that granite uh, granular level that they needed. But you know, that was the. I don't think that they came at it understanding that this was going to be a fight with the legislature legislators and Catherine Turser, who's a good government watchdog. She said, you know, the idea when this was passed by voters in 2015, the conversation centered around how the system would encourage cooperation between Republicans and Democrats. And it wasn't about Republicans who were afraid of being primaried by more conservative members of their own party. Look, I, I don't want to negate the idea that Cup and Huffman are the villains of this process. They're going against what the voters wanted. They're being sleazy about it. They're being heavy-handed about it. And we can only hope that the Ohio Supreme Court squashes them like the bugs they've become. But on the other hand, these other people were members of a committee. And anybody that's ever been part of a group project, whether it's in elementary school, at work, or anywhere else, knows if you got a deadline and you're on a committee and you're not seeing any movement, you got to push it. They didn't push it. They just sat right. back and said, man, these guys have cut us out. That's a shame. Oh, well. And that's 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 an abdication. We've said the word over and over again. But Mike DeWine, Faber, LaRose, they abdicated their responsibilities here. And the, the story did go into some detail that there was a thought that they could work separately with the Democrats, but they kind of abandoned that. Right. That's it a shame. A, it was a kind of a last ditch approach attempt to come up with something. I mean, DeWine got involved in the 11th hour here, basically realizing that the maps that they had drawn were unconstitutional and unfair. But you're right. I, I completely agree. They could have raised their hand at any time and just said, this isn't working. You're not being fair. This is not happening out in the open like we promised voters. And they could have taken a stand. All I can think is all of these people are putting their, their party before the people. Well, Huffman and Cup certainly are. And it's another one of those things where they they feel like they're so unassailable because they have this this artificial supermajority in the legislature that nothing can stop them. And this is when people in power make mistakes. It's that idea that absolute power corrupts, corrupts absolutely. absolutely. I mean, they, these guys are so out of control that, that it's ridiculous to the point where they're excluding people like DeWine, LaRose, and Faber. So good stuff by Andrew Tobias. Check it out on cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. Does Cuyahoga County have too many judges based on its population? Why do we have so many more than Franklin County, which has more people? Layla, this has been a question that's been in the background for a long time. We got a lot of judges in Cuyahoga County, and let's face it, not all of them work very hard. <laughs> yes, the court has 34 judges in the general division alone. Another six judges are assigned to the court's juvenile division. Five sit on the domestic relations court bench. And then there are two probate court judges. So as you said, all told, we have twice as many judges as Franklin County, which has a greater population. And this all came up during a county council meeting last month when Councilman Michael Gallagher pointed it out and basically called for a reduction in the number of judges. So Corey Schaefer took a look back through our paper's archives to figure out how this came to be. He pointed out, of course, that only the state legislature can increase the number of judges, and yet the size of the court can only be reduced through attrition. So let's go back down the memory lane to 1894. Uh, back then, they had a hard time keeping up with the caseload. The, the Cuyahoga County Bar Association wrote a letter that year to the county's delegation of lawmakers 
uh, at calling on them to to pass a bill that would raise the number of judges from six to 10. They had a two year backlog of cases and they complained about a dangerous level of overcrowding at the jail. They had 78 inmates. which It's interesting to compare that to today's, uh, you know, what we consider an over overcrowding problem now. So the county got those extra judges, but every few years, the same issues arose. The population was booming, but there were other factors, too. Cuyahoga County had become somewhat of a litigious place. Uh, There were lots of lawsuits being filed by plaintiffs chasing big paydays. By 1963, the population was nearing its all-time high, and the 21 judges were really struggling to keep up with their dockets. There were 12,000 civil cases pending, and the number of criminal cases had tripled since the 50s. So they asked for four more judges. And then there was a big pushback from the lawmakers. They basically said, get it together, Cuyahoga County, get control of your caseload. That led to a lawsuit that compelled the state to reapportion judges. Corey details that whole legal battle. It's so fascinating. But it ended up with more judges in Cuyahoga County. And then by the mid-70s, population was on the decline, but the murder rate was soaring. And it was regularly topping 300 per year. And recent changes in state law required that defendants go to trial within 90 days if a person was jailed. So they needed more judges, and they got them. So, of course, since then, population and caseloads have dropped, and yet the county remained at this very high number of judges. There's so much great history and context for readers and Corey's story. Yeah, although toward the end of the story is kind of the definitive number. The number of trials is a fraction of what it was before. Right. And that's why you need judges. What I found fascinating, one, I got to say, Gallagher is now my favorite county councilman because he stood up (laughs) and did something nobody else is willing to do because there are all these party hacks that just go wherever the party takes them. And, And he's not in that party, but at least he stood up and said it. But the other thing that was fascinating is the Plain Dealer was a huge advocate for these repeated expansions. And I think now Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer will be the advocate, shrink them, shrink them, shrink them. We don't need this many judges. And look, we've shown there are, there are judges that work their tails off over there. Kathleen Satula and Sherry Day and a whole bunch of them, they really do their job. But there are other judges over there that don't work and their caseloads move slowly and they have a ton of inmates in the jail. So clearly we don't need them because they're not really doing anything. And, you know, Brendan Sheehan, the chief judge, can whine all he wants that Gallagher's out of line. But this is accountability time. We have too many judges in Cuyahoga County. The number of trials they're overseeing has shrunk dramatically. And Gallagher's raising a good point. If we need fewer judges, we need fewer courtrooms. That'll save us a bundle when they replace the Justice Center, right? Yes, and and, and that is exactly what his argument has been, uh, that, you know, we should take stock of that. I mean... I love your your point about how years ago we were the uh, the advocates for expansion. I mean, quite obviously, we're in a different moment, and um, you know, it's just a, it's a shame that the uh, that the state legislature didn't consider that we would be in this moment. Uh, why why would they set it up so that you would only lose judges through attrition? Why couldn't it be pegged to population or pegged to caseload? It just seems like uh, you know they kind of got away without having to uh, <laughs> create real, you know, accountability or, or any sort of safeguard in that respect. I don't know. Well, and Franklin County needs some help. They've grown by, 
huge numbers and they haven't gotten more judges. And so we should lose some, they should gain some, and that way the state budget for judges is stable. Great stuff by uh, Corey, another good story over the weekend. Check it out on cleveland.com. Does the public get any financial return on the huge investment it makes in sports stadiums? And is the whole process rigged in favor of the sports teams? Lisa, the, our new, one of our newest reporters, Caitlin Durbin, did a just wonderful story giving you this, the current state of stadium financing that exists. And we're really in a bad position as the city and the county that owns the stadiums. It seems like the teams have all the power. Oh, the teams have us over a barrel. And, you know, I've seen this play out in Houston when they lost the Oilers. You saw it play out in 1996 when the Browns went to Baltimore. They asked for a new stadium, didn't get it. But by 1999, they were back in Cleveland. So there's a financial component and there's an emotional component. We are a, a, a mid-sized city with three professional teams. That's extremely unusual. But, you know, we're so attached to our teams. I mean, I think to lose the Indians slash Guardians would be a knife to the heart, not only to us as fans, but downtown Cleveland as a whole. That's just my opinion. But uh, the county, the Cuyahoga County, just approved $285 million for renovations and repairs over the next 15 years. The only no vote was Mike Gallagher. He says it's a bad deal. Residents, if given a chance to vote on it, would vote against it. He says there's just nobody has any money. And this kind of bumps up against other major financial commitments that the county has. Like they want to build a new jail and a and a new courthouse, possibly it cost upwards of half a billion dollars. But then again, Cuyahoga County Council Member Dale Miller, who voted for it, said it's reasonable, and I kind of agree with him. They could have asked for a brand new stadium, and new stadiums are close to a billion dollars nowadays. They're basically just asking for four hundred and thirty-five million dollars in renovations. They apparently the kitchen where the team eats only holds twelve people. The ceiling's leaky and and water stained, and they're going to open up that glassed-in box, the Terrace Club, to make it a more open concourse and like a beer garden. So. Um, and renovations are unusual in stadiums. At Jacobs Field opened in 1994. Only 16 stadiums have been renovated versus rebuilt since 1970. So this is unusual. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, I would hate to lose the team. I think it would be a blow to downtown. Um, it is an economic driver. Some people do argue that, that it creates 5,000 jobs. It's $21 million a year in state and local taxes. And, you know, it, it drove economic development downtown. We have more hotels now, more people living downtown. There are more restaurants. And I don't know if you can draw that directly to the Indian Stadium, but people are certainly trying to do that. So it depends on what well, side you're on. Uh, Although Caitlin did talk to somebody that said that's completely bogus, that people would spend right. this recreational money anyway, and, it, and if the team wasn't there, they'd be fine. The people who try to prop up the downtown district argue otherwise. should point out that Gallagher is not automatically against sports stadium financing. He said that the deal to renovate what is now Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse was a good deal, that that was one that was beneficial. The team put in a lot more money on right. that. Um we should we you know I should we should point out too that the team never threatened to leave. They they mm -hmm. never said, "Look, do this or you might lose us." But as as Caitlin points out, that's always there because of what you said, the teams that did it. Interesting Guardians uh, piece of news, they were new 
logo stuff was supposed to go on sale today, caps and shirts and all the the food for all that comes with the sports team, and they've canceled it without explanation, at well, least as of now. Uh, that lawsuit is, uh, that lawsuit is still pending. I mean, I'm surprised we're calling them the guardians in the plain dealer in Cleveland.com because it's not a done deal yet, in my opinion. The well, lawsuit's still open. I think it's a done... I think it's a done deal. They'll be called the Guardians at the end. It's just a matter of what size check they write. But it is interesting that they have canceled their sales. Anyway, Caitlin uh, puts it all together. She toured the place. She talked to everybody involved. Uh, A good kind of update on how this stuff is working in the modern era. It's on Cleveland.com. And you are listening to Today in Ohio. Who is the first black woman U.S. attorney in Ohio history? Laura, this was a story that broke very late on Friday, so we haven't had a chance to talk to her, interview her about what her priorities would be. But what do we know about her? Yeah, so we are working on that. But Marissa Darden was announced. I think it was 5.30 p.m. The press release came out. She was one of a number of U.S. attorneys and U.S. marshals named by Uh, Biden late on Friday, but she is a principal in the Cleveland office of the law firm Squire Patton Boggs. She's practiced there since 2019. Previously, she worked as an assistant U.S. attorney in Cleveland from 2014 on to 2019, and she's been assistant district attorney for the Manhattan District Attorney's Office in New York. She's also an adjunct funk faculty member at Case Western Reserve School of Law, and she lectures on criminal law. Her beginning of her career was as a litigator in New York. So I'm not sure if she's from New York. We have to track all of that down, but she's been in Cleveland since at least 2014. Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see which direction she goes. You know, Steve Dettelbach, when he was the U.S. attorney, made it very much about social justice. He met with every possible different group he could meet with at the beginning of his term and focused his office on those kinds of things. And then when he left and the next guy came in, it was all about gun crime and law and order and trying to reduce uh, what's been going on in gun crime. So it's going to be interesting to see how what her focus is and how she brings things about there's been a feeling sometimes that the the office is not as tuned into civil rights as it should be Mm -hmm. um you know if you look at the the failure to finish up the the tamir rights case and whether that comes back so i can't wait to hear from her uh to be a interesting moment for the u.s attorney's office in the direction it takes we'll have to see if she gets confirmed also but i imagine she would be right I was just going to say, there was a joint statement from Portman and and Brown, which you don't see a lot of joint statements from those two, calling her an outstanding nominee, and that throughout her legal career, serving the community has been her priority. So they were both gung-ho for her, which is good news. Yeah, I've been impressed whenever it comes to these appointments, those two, even though they're on opposite sides of the political spectrum, they've worked together. I mean, it's a small bit of bipartisanship, but Portman and Brown on these appointments have generally been on the same page. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The father of well-known U.S. Attorney or U.S. Marshal Pete Elliott spent most of his law enforcement career trying to find the man who stole $215,000 from Society National Bank on Public Square in 1969. He died before solving the crime, but his son has finally found closure. Layla, this is one hell of a yarn, and John Coniglia put it together in fine fashion. What's the story? Man, this is so interesting. 
52 years ago, this 20-year-old bank teller named Theodore Conrad left his job at this bank with all that cash and just vanished. And try as they might, investigators couldn't find this guy. On Friday, U.S. Marshal Pete Elliott said his office finally solved this decades-old mystery. It turns out that Conrad died in May in a Boston suburb at the age of 71. He had gone by the alias Thomas Randell. He had a family. He became a local golf pro over the years. He sold luxury cars. He apparently burned through all that money that he stole because he had struggled financially in his final years. But as he died of lung cancer... He confessed to this crime. So the story goes that Conrad had graduated from Lakewood High School and then found himself a college dropout working as a teller at the bank in 1969. The job required him to work in the vault. And when tellers and branches and branches needed more cash, Conrad would package it up and deliver it. So he had access to hundreds of thousands of dollars every day. Even though he, he seemed on the outside to be this upstanding young man, he was actually fascinated by deception. He had shoplifted to prove he could do it, and he was obsessed with the film The Thomas Crown Affair, which is about a bank heist. And he tried to mimic Steve McQueen's lifestyle. He was the star of that movie. And he bragged to his friends about how easy it would be to pull off a crime like that at his own bank. He said that if he grabbed the money on a Friday, he would have a two-day head start before anyone suspected it was missing. And that's exactly what he did. Conrad was seen leaving the bank that day carrying a paper bag with a carton of Marlboros and a bottle of Canadian Club whiskey, but he also had all this cash. And he hopped on a plane out of Cleveland and he was gone. So Pete Elliott's father, Deputy Marshal John Elliott, was among the investigators chasing this fugitive for years and years. Even after John Elliott retired in 1990, he refused to walk away from this case. He said it bothered him that people saw Conrad as this Robin Hood figure, and that wasn't the case at all, obviously. Unfortunately, John Elliott died in 2020, but his son recently received a tip that helped him break open the case. He interviewed the guy's family and friends out in the Boston area, and he said it was unmistakable. This was their guy. There's so much to enjoy about this just incredible story by John Cadiglia. Yeah, the only weird thing was that Pete Elliott was cryptic about how he figured it out. I know, he wouldn't say. He wouldn't say. (laughs) I I mean, the guy's dead for crying out loud. You ought to let us know. Here's the question. Do you think the guy ever before his deathbed confession had told his wife? Probably. Probably because it seemed from, you know, the timeline of things that he flew out to, like he first went to California and that that's where he met his wife and that they came together either together or with a child to the Boston area and that at some point after they moved to Boston, he changed his name. If my husband tells me he wants to change his name, <laughs> I'm going to ask some questions about why. So, um, you know, an alias is is a red flag, right? <laughs> well, it's fascinating to live your almost your entire adulthood as a lie. It, great stuff. Great story. And it's very cool that, that Pete Elliott solves this case that he spent many a, a night at his at his dinner table with his dad talking about over the mm-hmm, years. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just such a such a wonderful tale. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Are the three groups suing to overturn the new gerrymandered maps in Ohio getting their day in court before the Ohio Supreme Court like they wanted, or are they getting pretty tightly restricted? Lisa, the decision came down, I guess, on Friday that says, not so fast, guys. 
Well, they are getting their day in court. I mean, there was there is a December 8th hearing for the one of the three lawsuits that was filed by the ACLU and the League of Women Voters. So the other two lawsuits, one a collaboration of uh, oh, it's the Ohio Organized, Organized Collaborative and then the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, they wanted their day in court and they're getting it. So they'll be joining these oral arguments on December 8th. But... The three groups together, as I read it, only get 30 minutes to state their case. And that's along with any Democratic lawmakers who voted against the maps who want to give oral arguments. And then the GOP defendants also get their 30 minutes in court. So, But there's apparently some new rules involved. It directs map makers to, quote, attempt, unquote, drawing proportionate maps, which would be 55 GOP 45, you know, democratic. So I, I, it seems to hinge on that language. And I think that Cup and Huffman used that language to their advantage when they were drawing these crazy maps that give them, you know, like a 12 to three majority. So they are getting their day in court, but they're going to have to talk fast. You know, people were a little bit outraged by this, but the fact is that in a Supreme Court case, whether it's the state or the United States, these things are argued in the briefs. The appearance before the court is so the judges can ask questions if they have any, but but they're generally not considered trial-length kind of hearings. The, the people have made their arguments back and forth, back and forth. They argue, then the other side responds, then the first side responds. So this isn't all that unusual. The, the, the Supreme Court has the arguments. They know what they're their material is, including, we should point out, Pat DeWine, son of the governor who yet won't recuse himself and is going to rule on his father's gerrymandering case in an unprecedented situation anywhere in the nation. Uh, but it'll be but it'll be fun. As a reporter, Layla, you covered courts. Wouldn't you love it if, if uh, the hearings were all limited to 30 minutes each? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I speak for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's nothing like brevity when you're trying to make a point. All right. Well, that'll be some riveting uh, testimony and uh, discussion on December 8th. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Where does U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio get his optimism and confidence that the Congress will pass the $1.75 trillion Build Back Better social spending bill before Thanksgiving? Laura, there are two Democratic senators that are against this, and that's enough to kill it. So where is Sherrod coming from on this? Well, he thinks that he's got the votes. That means having Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema on board, and that's because of the Senate split. But he said this during a Columbus campaign stop with Dayton Mayor Nan Maley. And so while there are reports that Manchin wanted to push back this plan until next year because of inflation, Brown says that he's got the votes and the support for the deal, which includes funding for universal preschool and an extended tax credit that would mean a lot to a lot of families. All right. I, I, it just surprised me that he was so confident. Thanksgiving is a week from Thursday, so <laughs> not, not a lot of time here. And it just seems odd that they believe they have the votes. The Republicans are going to come charging hard at this. And there is a feeling that the, this Congress is spending a lot of money that we don't have. Well, we'll have and even if, if it does get passed, you know, the Ohio Republicans could always reject the uh, federal money. Say, we don't want your money. <laughs> yeah, they might. It's today in Ohio. 
Is Opportunity Corridor finally open? What was the holdup on Friday? Layla, we need to have closure on this because we've <laughs> talked about it. They, they screwed up. You know, they had the ribbon cutting week, a week and a half before they were supposed to open it. Right. And when they were supposed to open it, they screwed it up again. I, I think the holdup was that ODOT wanted to give us one more day to make fun of them. <laughs> <laughs> I think they just wanted to screw with us because they knew we wanted to be there when it opened. So why not open it at 11 p.m.? Uh, is that what it finally did? I thought it was yeah. Roll it out around eight. Well, anyway, so yeah, of course, November 3rd, they had the ribbon cutting and only to say the road wasn't going to open until the 12th. So we sent a photographer there on the 12th to capture the first cars headed down this beautiful, gleaming stretch of road and it was still not open. So they finally opened opened it uh, at about 7 p.m. Friday. They did it very incrementally, though. So it was intersections open from east to west and started with East 55th Street, ended with East 93rd. The sections of, of Opportunity Corridor that stretched to East 105th in University Circle opened in 2017 and 18. So finally, the entire project is online. Now we just have to see whether this huge public investment spurs the kind of economic development that it promises for that formerly forgotten stretch of town. Right. You know, I went and drove it uh, over the weekend. My wife and I went to see the Van Gogh paintings at the art museum, the real ones. And we figured, let's spin down, see what it looks like. And what did strike me, one, there were cars all over it. So people have immediately started using it. But it does open up a lot of fallow ground for development. And I, my bet is it will develop because this is going to be how people get to Cleveland Clinic, UH, Case Western Reserve University from the interstate. It's so much better than going down Carnegie and and hitting every light known to humankind on pothole ridden roads. This is this is a pretty straight shot. And there's a ton of land along there that that is open. So my bet is over the next 10 years, you're going to see a whole lot developed there. I did see the site for the police station. I, I still think that's a waste of time. <laughs> they shouldn't yeah. put it out there. It is kind of the <laughs> middle of nowhere. So how uh, many how many lights do you hit on that stretch of opportunity? I don't know. There might there might be five, maybe six. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't bad. It's three lanes for a good part of the way too. So it's unlike Carnegie, which you know when you're going down Carnegie and you get near that 55th Street area. You know, on Carnegie, there's always somebody driving 15 miles an hour. That you just wish you had a rocket launcher on top of your car, blow them <laughs> off the road. Oh, the, 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 this is this is a much straighter shot. It's uh, it's it's easy, and I, it, look, it's a gateway now to University Circle, and it feels like as you drive in that it's a gateway to University Circle. Um, the, the, if this really was about building investment in a section of town that has none. My bet is it'll be successful, so we'll have to see. Hmm. That does it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Lisa. We'll be back on Tuesday for another discussion of the news. Thanks for listening.